Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure series. Today we are recording on location in Tianu, and Tianu is the gateway to Fjordland National Park, which is by far New Zealand's largest national park. The park itself is the size of whales. Now, Lake Tianu is the biggest freshwater lake in the Southern Hemisphere by volume. Today, the show is featuring Roscoe Gowden, and Roscoe was born in Lower Hutt, which is on the southern end of the North Island. Roscoe is the mayor of Milford, and we're going to hear more about that later. The Milford Sound is the most northern fjord in Fjordland National Park, and he is the owner and operator of Roscoe's Milford Kayaks, which is by far New Zealand's best and most spectacular sea kayaking adventures. First of all, thank you so much, Roscoe, for joining me here on location for the Trail Less Traveled. My pleasure, Mandela. We're recording today in your home, and you're surrounded by your amazing little dogs here. Tell us about who's uh, sitting on your lap. I've got two Bichon toy poodles. Duke here is sitting on my lap next to Otis, and we Bella, who's a wee chihuahua, teacup chihuahua, so very small, the wee naughty girl in the house. The boys have just done a mega drive with me. They've just driven about 800 kilometres into Milford, out of Milford, to Invercargill, had the boat serviced, back into Milford and back out again. So these guys do about 40 to 50,000 kilometres a year with me in whatever vehicle I happen to be travelling in. Duke normally sitting on my lap and Otis wide awake as co-driver the whole time. So Bella stays at home. It's my wife's uh, handbag dog. And you mentioned, depending on what vehicle you're driving, and what we're going to get more into detail later about your different rigs that you quite enjoy. And later on, we're going to actually head up to the top of Mount Prospect in Homer, which is a land cruiser. But my first question for you, Roscoe, is where did you grow up, and how was adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up in the North Island of New Zealand. New Zealand's made up of three islands, the North Island, South Island, and Little Stewart Island way down south. North Island, a place called Lower Hutt, and that's just out of Wellington, which is the capital city of New Zealand, in a big valley called the Hutt Valley. So the Hutt Valley is, there's Upper Hutt and Lower Hutt. I was born in the Lower Hutt Hospital, but I was brought up in the Upper Hutt district, a place called Silverstream, which was a very nice part of the valley, looking up at the Tararua Mountains mountain range, which is a big range of mountains which takes you up into the snow-capped mountains so from where home was I could look up and see the Tararua Mountains and as a kid growing up I was certainly keen on my tramping I was also keen on where you go up to the base of the Tararua's was the Temarua car park and at the base of that was a stock car track so a lot of Saturday nights saw me going to the Temarua 
stock car track and my friend's brother was racing sprint cars there and I really liked the excitement and the speed and the smell of you know the race cars racing and so Saturday nights I used to without a doubt go there with my mate and watch his brother compete in Speedway. Other weekends more in the winter time when the Speedway wasn't on I'd enjoy going into the next valley Whiteman's Valley and we watched a series called the Deadman Safari and that was basically a series of mostly homemade four-wheel drives getting through obstacles big mud baths huge big hills downhills and these challenges were met with enthusiasm by the drivers and as a young fellow I used to stand there in awe and just watch these guys drive these rigs through and if they couldn't get through there was a bulldozer or a tractor at the end to pull them through so I quite enjoyed doing that in the winter time if ever there was a Deadwood Safari going on I'd certainly make sure that I was there. Now just to back it up you said you enjoy tramping and that's a pretty common word in New Zealand but in other places of the world they might wonder what is tramping can you tell us what the definition of tramping is? Yeah tramping is just basically getting your pack on and going bush anything from a day trip to multi-day trips a lot of my trips were multi-day southern crossings and taking us over into the Otaki Forks just with good mates and pretty hard slog in the Tararuas at times the weather very wet very cold quite a dangerous place in hindsight when I was a young fella I probably didn't realize how dangerous it was it's only in the last couple of decades that I've we've seen people actually die up there and uh, you're not in the southern Alps as such but it's still a very exposed wet cold spot so my tramping was mainly in the Tararuas, although I did go up to Ruapehu and the mountains on the central plateau. And then, of course, when I went south, I came south and never left because the Tararuas are just foothills compared to what we've got on our, on our back doorstep here in Tiana, So, But the Tararuas was a really good training ground for me. It gave me a lot of respect for the wild. The rivers could get, come up very quickly and how cold it could be. I remember getting to a hut once up on the southern crossing the Kaim hut and I realised I was in trouble I got to the hut couldn't stop shivering and had to make a decision to get down pretty quick and I stuffed the newspaper in the hut down between my waterproof parka and I knew if I got down out of the altitude I'd be okay and that's what I did I stuffed all this newspaper down because I didn't have enough gear on and hightailed it down to field hut which was a hut much lower below Kaim so that was my first taste of hypothermia. It was quite scary at the time, but as I look back on it now, I think that, well, that's a very exposed part of the Tararuas, and it has claimed lives quite recently as well. But, yeah, no, tramping, yeah. I never really got much past tramping. I dabbled in a wee bit of mountain climbing, but nothing serious. So tramping was where it stuck with me. Roscoe, I just came here on a bus from Queenstown and the bus driver had a lot of wonderful information to share with the passengers and he said that here in New Zealand we have lots of capitals. For example, Athol, which is the capital of fly fishing. And here we are now in Teanu, which is apparently the capital of tramping or great walks. So can you tell us about just a couple of the walks out your back door? Yeah, the closest one to us just across the lake here is the Kepler tramp or walk it's one of the great walks and it's one of the newer ones as well it was built from scratch back in 1987 opened in 1988 
and it's a 60 kilometre loop which takes in Mount Luxmore and the Iris Burn Valley and it's walked by thousands of people throughout the year. Even in the winter time, a lot of people still go up there and walk. Again, needs a lot of respect in the winter. There was a couple of guys swept to their deaths two winters ago. They didn't heed the avalanche warnings and they didn't tell anyone they were going up there either. And the first sign that something was amiss was when their parents went to meet them off the plane in Canada and they didn't turn up. So the Kepler track, beautiful track, but an alpine track for sure. The views are to die for off Mount Luxmore, looking down the lake and back into the township of Tiania. And the Iris Burn itself is a beautiful valley as well. So, And then, of course, that famous walk, which you have to book a year to two and a half years in advance, apparently. And you have to take a boat on both ends to get there. Tell us about what has been called by some the greatest walk on the earth. Yeah, that'll be the Milford Track. A lot of history on the Milford Track, unlike the Kepler. The track itself is two valleys and a pass. The first couple of days sees you walking up this beautiful valley called the Clinton Valley and it takes you up to the base of McKinnon Pass and then down the other side to the Arthur Valley which links up with Milford Sound. Yeah, the Milford Track is again one of the great walks, probably the most famous walk in New Zealand. It is very, very busy in the summertime, both guided and independent people walking it so You can have over 90 people on any particular part of the track at any one time. And times that by three, you can see the numbers that we're talking about. So a lot of people on the track, very well organised, very well run, independent options and guided options. Independent, of course, you just carry your own packs and sleeping bags and so forth and stay in basic huts with gas cookers and bunks. The guided walk is very popular, especially with older people or people that just just want more creature comforts and they can enjoy huts that have got linen on the beds, cooks cooking up three-course meals and hot showers and that sort of thing. Obviously, they pay a premium for that, but still, take my hat off to those people that walk it guided. It gets them out there in the bush and they still experience the same as the independent walkers. But the Milford Track is a beautiful track. Personally, myself, I've walked it the last few times. I have walked it out of season just to dodge the big crowds. But that's just my personal preference these days, just a little less crowded. You're listening to The Trail Less Travelled, and today The Trail Less Travelled is being recorded on location in Teanu, which is on New Zealand's South Island's west coast. It is the gateway to Fjordland National Park, and I'm speaking with Roscoe Gowden. He was born in Lower Hutt on the North Island, and Roscoe is passionate about many things. Roscoe is quite a lover of motorcycles and 4x4 vehicles, to name a few, and later on we're going to go inside one of his beloved heavily modified rigs called Homer. But Roscoe, I'd like to talk to you about where this passion started. You used to check out stock cars and spring cars at the speedway with your mate, but was there a moment when you realized, yeah, I really dig all things motor? One of those Deadwood safaris that I was on, I thought that would be really cool. You know, man versus machine versus terrain. You know, can that vehicle really get up that hill or can it really get through that bog? That sort of sparked my interest, but I suppose being a young fella and actually an apprentice at that stage, 
serving my time as a automotive spray painter. I think I was earning $75 a week or something like that. There was no way I was going to be able to get into the sport because obviously it took a fair bit of money just to start with, just to buy the initial rig and then to modify it. Of course, it does cost a lot of money as well. So I was very much a spectator back in those days and it's only been in the last two decades or so that I've been able to realise the passion and get into the sport myself with a series of off-road vehicles. Roscoe, I'd like to now ask you about a moment for you where you had an experience, but you learned a lesson from this experience, a lesson that perhaps you could share with the listeners. Yeah, one of my experiences off-road racing was actually not me buckled up and belted up and helmeted up in the vehicle at all. It was at Nelson a couple of years ago and I was racing a two-day 500k enduro race and I was out after the first day with mechanical failure so the second day myself and my friend Cookie decided to spectate the start of the second day enduro and of course the start is always very exciting you can imagine 45 vehicles in a line one behind the other the flag drops and there's the roar of thousands of horsepower v8s buggies everyone jostling for position so We'd gone down the track probably about a kilometre and we felt we were in a very safe position on the side of the track and I was recording the race as it went past. So the first two competitors came around the corner and I was recording with my phone and I just looked through the phone and I couldn't actually comprehend what I was seeing but the vehicle that was jostling side by side with this other vehicle was actually going into a big slide and heading straight towards me while I was still filming. I don't think I even had time to put the phone down and it recorded me as I got clipped by the vehicle and knocked down this bank with the vehicle following down the bank next to me. So this footage was quite surreal to watch afterwards. Just basically the phone, I think me yelling out an expletive as I went over the bank and I just received a huge big hematoma on my thigh as I rolled backwards down the bank. Then I sort of had to climb back up the bank and go down and sit around to where this guy had rolled down the bank. He was upside down in his vehicle and he was understandably quite concerned about fire because he was upside down with fuel coming out. And I got to him and obviously got his fire extinguishers out and had them ready. And we proceeded to make sure that he was okay. But you know, that wasn't me racing, that was me spectating. <laughs> and it happened again last year in another event where, again, a, a guy spun out and went through just a bit of tape. There was no armico barrier or, or fence or anything, it was just a bit of safety tape. And he went through and came within metres of cleaning myself and this other woman up. She was in shock. <laughs> I had to give her a big hug afterwards. She was more close than me to being hit. But so to this guy's credit, he didn't change his course, he kept the vehicle running straight, he didn't lock on his brakes and throw it into a sideways slide which would have taken us both out, so he kind of knew that he was out of control but knew what to do at the same time, so they are my two stories, neither of me in a vehicle. You're on the trail less travelled, and today the trail less travelled leads to Tianu on New Zealand's South Island, the gateway to Fjordland. And I'm interviewing Roscoe Gowden, who is a motorhead. He loves motorcycles, vehicles that can go off-road, and he also does endurance racing. 
Roscoe is very passionate about many things, and I'm going to be featuring him on another show talking about starting a sea kayaking company in the Milford Sound. But now, Roscoe, it's time to play a song. So can you share a song with us that reminds you of your early childhood? Perhaps going and watching those races with your friends. Okay, this song is very much a Kiwi song. It's by Fred Dagg. That's his stage name. John Clark is his real name. And it's the Gumboot song, if it weren't for your Gumboots. Yeah, pretty unique song. Very Kiwiana. And as you'd expect living down in Milford, where I live, I do wear my Gumboots quite a bit. And it's quite an appropriate song for where I live and what I do these days. This podcast is brought to you by Karuna Clothing. Karuna Clothing is handcrafted from natural fabrics, which soften as they age. Currently with design workshops in Missoula, Montana, and Mendocino County, California. All of their clothing is sewn and dyed in the United States. Karuna Clothing is sewn with love and laughter, and designed simply with the use of the best fabrics. They create their own unique colors, creating small batch product lines, which are simply beautiful. Karuna clothing is the first thing I toss into my suitcase when recording on location for the trail less traveled. You can find out more by visiting karunaclothing.com. That's K-A-R-U-N-A clothing.com. Back to Mandela and the trail less traveled. The trail has traveled leads today to the top of Prospect. And Prospect is overlooking Teanu and Lake Teanu. Lake Teanu is the biggest freshwater lake by volume in the southern hemisphere. And Teanu is right on the edge of Fjordland National Park, which is by far New Zealand's largest national park. Teanu is the town that you would travel through on your way to the Milford Sound. And the Milford Sound is the most northern fjord in Fjordland by far the most dramatic and beautiful one. I'm here with the mayor of Milford Sound, Roscoe Gowden. And Roscoe's been exploring this part of the world for many decades. He started Roscoe's Milford Kayaks, which is New Zealand's best sea kayaking. Those are expeditions in the Milford Sound. But today we have driven up to the top of Prospect, overlooking Fjordland. It's an epic view. I am going to hand it over to Roscoe to describe it to you. And coming up here in one of his rigs, Roscoe has a passion for, would you say, petrol and motors? Uh, that's correct, yeah. Two wheels, four wheels, motorized, not motorized, although they tend to be motorized as I get older these days. I used to mountain bike up Mount Prospect in my 20s and 30s, but these days I come up the easy way with Homer, my trusty Land Cruiser here. Homer loves coming up here, especially in the winter time with six or eight inches of snow, it's even better. But today, as you can see, absolutely stunning. I'm just in short sleeve up here and it's the views are to die for. And looking down at the little place I call home, Lake Tiania, it's just such a small dot on the landscape when you look at it but it's a lovely little town to live in and I really enjoy living there as I do spending time in Milford as well but looking out I mean the vista of the lake and the mountains in the background just stunning you you can't 
it's very hard to describe, but uh, the lake is like glass today, which is common this time of year. I mean, we've had our fair share of the winds, springtime, very windy lake, cuts up really rough, but today you just want to be out there in a kayak, on a stand-up paddleboard, even looks inviting to swim, although it'll be pretty chilly. I'm going to be out there tomorrow doing safety on a race Tiani is having an enduro race which includes mountain biking, running and paddling on the lake so I'm doing safety on the lake tomorrow in Mandela so I'm looking forward to spending about 8 hours on that lake tomorrow sitting there just making sure that people don't fall out of their kayaks and if they do we just get them back in their kayaks and they can carry on Mount Titaroa which is the one out here that looks like it's got the snow on it, that's the highest mountain in this area although doesn't look like it from here but that is the highest mountain in this part of Fiordland and up there is amazing it's like the moon it's like moon rock you might as well think you're on the moon if you're up there and if you're lucky enough to get up there the rock formations are incredible probably the most incredible rock formations of any of the mountains around here Obviously a lot of farming, a lot of dairy farming, a lot of sheep farming, deer farming. Farming is the other main industry that keeps Tianao ticking. It's the heartbeat of Tianao, especially in the early days. It's been probably superseded now by tourism. Tourism's and farming probably come in about 50-50. But you can sort of see the farmland here that we're looking at. And I'm lucky enough to know the owners of Mount Prospect Station, so that gets me up here pretty much hopefully from the rest of my life taking people up here friends family i've been up here obviously dozens and dozens of times usually in the four-wheel drive as i say my days of mountain biking up here i'll never say never i might get one of these e-bikes and give that a go because <laughs> the rush of going downhill of course is amazing pretty good rush dropping down into the valley but uh, yeah no it's an area that i really love living in and four-wheel driving gives me easy access if you like you don't even break a sweat getting up to these heights and you can see some amazing country and that's the beauty of having a passion for four-wheel drives and I've got three of them Uh, a couple of them are race versions of Homer so the idea is to get up here in a hurry but we're in no hurry today so I didn't bring the race vehicles up here we just plotted up in Homer and yeah that's the other passion that I do have is racing four-wheel drive vehicles at speed across rough country and just getting the FMA to be as quick as we can and competing against other like-minded petrol heads and we have a national series which is kicking off in Nelson in about just under five weeks time so I'm looking forward to getting up there and seeing how the season starts off. The start of the season there's always the unknown, you've got competitors coming from all around the South Island, some of them with brand new rigs that they've just built, buggies that they've just built so it's always good to see new people joining the sport and old faces returning so it's quite a social sport as well but when the gun goes off and the flag drops it's all business and then at the end of it we can all have a good laugh and have a few beers and recount the adventures of the race you know to be fair every race is different some races are a short course which is just laps usually five laps of about a kilometer kilometer and a half circuit and others are the enduros which i enjoy more which are 250 to 500 kilometer races where you're racing non-stop obviously just coming in for fuel and pit stops but the other ones I enjoy the most it's the test of man and machine it's not just brute speed it's a little bit of man and machine working together to get across the line and hopefully finish the race.
Tell us some of the other characteristics of these races, particularly the Enduro races, and maybe some of the meditation that you go through as a driver when you're in the car for that long and racing and focusing. It is a big mental game. It's a long time sitting down. It's a long time. Obviously, sometimes you're sitting there hot. Sometimes you're sitting there freezing in the middle of winter. You've got the elements. You've got the snow. Most of the vehicles, they're open. You've got a roll cage and an open screen, so you haven't got a heater going or anything like that. So you're subject to the elements. I've had you know, sleet, hail coming in, stinging my face. Some of the guys are wearing full face helmets. I myself prefer a motocross helmet with goggles that I can regulate the mud with tear-offs or a roller system, which I use to keep my vision good throughout the course of the race. And I just change the roll-offs of the goggles as I go. But it's a long time to concentrate. It's a long time to keep on your A game. You want to constantly be, you know, every 15, 20 minutes really checking that you are actually going as fast as you should be not getting into cruise mode which is easy to do in a long race you just do the best you can it's really you and the course rather than you and the other competitors if you're trying to race other competitors you can come unstuck at times people's reading of the course can be different to what yours is and the good thing about the enduros is that every lap changes because we're in often in soft either mud or sandy conditions so every lap can be totally different from the lap before that there can be another big rut or a big hole that wasn't there the lap before that's the exciting part of this motorsport is that there's no two courses the same there's no two laps the same really there's no two vehicles the same there are a lot of production vehicles and they're probably led by the UTVs that are coming into the sport now, Polaris, Yamaha and Can-Am, they're the three major manufacturers that compete and they've come over from obviously the States and other parts of the world where that sort of racing's been popular and it's suited the tight, twisty nature of a lot of the courses here. You know, a lot of these small, relatively small buggies are cleaning up against much bigger, more powerful buggies that you know, running big V8s and high horsepower, but you know, if you get high horsepower, you've still got to get the traction down to get around those corners quick, and obviously the straights, you know, get down them as quick as possible. But as a sport, as I say, it's an exciting sport. There's probably just over a hundred hardcore competitors that regularly compete the national circuit, and New Zealand is well suited to it because of the terrain. You know, we've got some awesome logging terrain logging tracks and so forth farmland rolling farmland beach not like sand dunes but close to the beach areas up in Woodhill where the home of the off-road racing probably started in New Zealand then you've got all the sort of Mackenzie country almost like desert country with big sharp rocks ready to leap out and punch your tyres which was what happened to me at the Nationals last year at Labor Weekend, probably five, six, I think seven punches in one 250k race, so yeah. You're listening to The Trail Less Travelled, and The Trail Less Travelled leads today to the top of Mount Prospect, which is overlooking Teanu and Lake Teanu and Fiordland National Park, which is on New Zealand's South Island's west coast. We drove Roscoe's rig called Homer up here, and it's a custom land cruiser. Now, Roscoe, I, maybe a little bit of a silly question, but I am curious. When you're racing enduro races and you have to go to the bathroom, what do you do? Do you stop? Um, no. <laughs> but having said that, we're talking number ones rather than number twos. Every race has got their different theory on it. I think some races do stop. I, much to my wife's disgust, wear a nappy. And 
yeah, that sort of does the job. I mean, it's very important in these longer races to keep hydrated, and hydration is essential. If you get into a dehydrated state in the middle of a race, you're in trouble because you, suddenly your concentration levels drop significantly and your performance drops significantly. So hydration is incredibly important, and I drink a lot throughout a race, and I pee a lot in a race but you know as I say every driver's got their different theory on it some have got a catheter sort of set up with a tube going down and into the car uh, I haven't got that high tech yet but the, the nappy does me but I certainly don't go anywhere near my wife until the nappy's changed at the end of the race. Awesome that's awesome Roscoe. Now I'm curious when it comes to racing enduro when it getting close and you're passing your competitors is it more of caning distance in them over a period of time or at the end is it gets pretty close a lot of races are won in the last part of the race not always sometimes you'll get a clear winner who clears off on day one if it's a two-day 500k race other days you just want to keep as close as you can to the action just in case something mechanical happens to your competitor it's really, for me, in my early 50s now, um, it's the tortoise and the hare. The hares are the young guys in their 20s that have got a different attitude to risk, I suppose. You know, they're willing to really throw it out there on the line and set a real blistering pace, if you like, at the start of the enduro. The one thing they say, the race is never won on the first lap, but it can be lost on the first lap, and that rings true. I'm more the tortoise, which is chasing the hares. The hares take off, I'll sit there and get into a groove, a pace that I know I can maintain, and I'm looking after the gear, looking after the tyres, looking after the transmission, the brakes. So, you know, if it's a two-day event, for instance, I know that second day that you know, I've still got some pace left and we can certainly close those last three or four laps, whether it be 40 kilometres, 50 kilometres, you can close those up at a greater rate of knots than you did when you started. Qualifying is important, obviously. You know, you've got a qualifying event and you need to qualify well. You don't want to be sort of back in the grid, back in the 30s or 40s. You want to try and qualify in that top 10 to give yourself a fighting chance to either maintain the top 10 or better at getting even the top five or even better podium. Roscoe, what would you say are the three main characteristics that you look for in a good 4x4 for enduro racing? Power to weight is important. You need something that's light, light enough and agile enough that can still do the business when it comes to it. Tire choice is very important and with tire choice, just running the right pressures, I mean that can make a huge difference in a race. You can't underestimate tire pressures. Every race is different. Obviously in the rockier courses you want to run a bit more pressure so you're not prone to puncturing. It's a trade-off in the mud dropping your pressure gives you a bit more grip but then if the course is a mixture of mud and rock then you've just got to find a happy medium and I suppose just seat position you know setting up your buggy you know that's good for you I'm currently just changing my buggy a wee bit and getting the center of gravity down dropping my seat down as low dropping it probably about 60 mil so I'm sitting almost on the floor of the vehicle just to get that center of gravity down so I think set up setting that buggy up just for you no one else and just getting it absolutely perfect so the machine becomes part of you through your butt you know your feet on the pedals and the steering wheel I think that's a really important thing as well. You're listening to the trail less traveled and we're recording in New Zealand on the South Island 
West Coast in Teanu on Mount Prospect. And when we began this segment, Roscoe, I asked you to describe what you saw, which is a pretty impossible question. Just facing out towards Teanu where you live and Lake Teanu. And let's just take in the 180 degrees, starting from our left, those absolutely gorgeous peaks that are offset from Fjordland itself, and then ending on that road that you ride your motorcycles to and some of your other rigs to the place that you're the mayor of. And we'll do another show on the Milford Sound, but can you do your best to describe what you see from the rolling farmlands to the peaks and perhaps starting over here in the south? Okay, so we're looking at the famous Takatimu mountain range there. And I'm pretty familiar with that range. I've got a good friend who runs a station over there, Mount Tower Peak Station. So I've been up there numerous times and that's a stunning area over there. Just last month in February, which is supposedly our warmest month of the year, the tops were covered in snow. Pretty unseasonable, but not surprising for Fiordland. Looking through to Mount Titaroa and Manapuri out there, and that's a stunning view. Manapuri's a town which is the closest town to Tiana, it's 20 kilometres and a beautiful town in its own right, also by a stunning lake, certainly got that in common. And then swinging around to the Kepler mountain range, which is famous for its walk, the Kepler four-day walk, 60 kilometre loop, and every year in Tiana there's a famous race there, the first weekend in December, where athletes from all over the world put themselves on those mountains and run around in a day around that 60 kilometre loop and the current race record's held by an Australian guy just over four and a half hours which is incredible that includes going up over Mount Luxmore and right around the Irisburn so some good runners good athletes in general just turn up in town now in the first week in December and put their views the lake what do you say about the lake I can't even see a boat on it which is crazy I've been right around that lake in all sorts of weathers and it's just a stunning piece of water and it stretches right down as far as you can see down to the Milford Track down there and you know, just looking out to Fiordland National Park out there it's just, yeah, it's just beautiful, it's a stunning day, a little bit of haze, high cloud but this seems like there's no one out here at the moment, you look out there's not a boat on the lake, there's not a plane in the sky, it's just we've got it to ourselves, it's just a magic day to be here. And that road that is heading off to the northwest, you uh, enjoy driving that road I believe and uh, many of your rigs. I've seen your motorcycle and it looks like a really fun pony to ride. Tell us about that road and the turns on it. The Milford Road has been voted one of the top 10 roads in the world for motorcyclists and I enjoy riding it. I've ridden in in a variety of bikes. Probably my favourite bike at the moment that I ride in there is the Suzuki Habusa, which is still the fastest production bike in the world but I won't say too much about the speeds I get up to. But the road itself is just a mixture. You get right into the little bit of windy stuff just to warm your tyres up. That's the twisty bit just between Tiaunau and Tiaunau Downs. 20 kilometres later, your tyres are well and truly warm. You get into the Eglinton, again, a few short, sharp straights combined with some twisties. And then you get into the fun stuff in the upper Eglinton where it's all twisty, windy, narrow, one-way bridges, and you're just climbing... You really have not got time to look at the scenery. To do that would be a huge mistake if you're on a bike or a car for that matter. If you want to look at the scenery, please, please, please stop and get out and look at it. 
on the bike and the car, it's all about concentration and what's coming at you. It's a busy road with tourists, camper vans, buses. There's a whole lot of hazards, if you like, out there. But the road itself is absolutely stunning through the tunnel and then winding your way down a series of hairpins down to sea level, down to Milford Sound itself. And getting off the bike when I ride in there, it doesn't even seem like I'm riding to work. It's just getting off the bike and you're just going, what a ride, what a ride to work, you know. If you ever get a chance to come to New Zealand, come and ride the Milford Road or drive the Milford Road. It's the most spectacular Alpine road in New Zealand. You're on the trail less travelled and we are recording on top of Mount Prospect overlooking Fjordland National Park. I'm speaking with Roscoe Gowden who is the owner of Roscoe's Milford Kayaks. He's also very passionate about motors and petrol and uh, he does enduro racing. Now, Roscoe, it's time to play a song. So can you share a song with us that reminds you of enduro racing or your passion for petrol? The song I've got in mind is Yellow. Uh, It's called The Race. It's an unusual song, but the lyrics say a lot, and I'll leave you with that. It's a fun song that I used to drive a lot to when I was driving ski buses back in the 80s up the South Island ski fields. listening to the trail less traveled and right now we're literally on a trail that is less traveled and it's at the what's the station prospect station Mount prospect station yep mount prospect station and uh, definitely behooves you if you have a four by four four-wheel drive vehicle and right now we're in homer which is a land cruiser and it has lots of customization done to it by Roscoe Gowden who is my guest today and we were just on top of Mount Prospect kind of talking about his enduro races and the beautiful view but now I'd like to just as you cruise down the hill in Homer tell us about this rig and your creation of it because it's definitely a custom rig. Uh, it is a custom rig but I, I have to say uh, being a kayak guide and a tourism operator I don't profess to be a mechanic an engineer or a fabricator so I pay people to do the work that I want on these rigs. So Homer came to me via a friend who was selling it up in the North Island. It was a stock standard 70 series Land Cruiser. It did have an old 400 Chev motor in it, an old tired motor. It did have 35 inch wheels and it had all the work done so I could see that it was a diamond in the rough if you like Mandela and I could see the potential in it being a mid-wheel base not a long wheel base or a short wheel base uh, and I just saw that I could do something with Homer. Homer didn't have the name Homer I like to give all my vehicles and bikes names that's just the way it's been for years it just gives them a bit of personality and when things are going well you can give Homer a good pat on the bonnet and say he's done well when things aren't going so well we can sympathize over a cup of tea or a a cold beer but generally Homer uh, well lately Homer's been very good to me we have had our trials and tribulations as you do with any four-wheel drive vehicle but we started off by pulling out the old 400 Chev and putting in a brand new crate 350 Chev 
which I thought was sufficient for what I was trying to achieve with Homer, horsepower-wise, torque-wise, and the 350 Chev is a good, strong motor, straight out of the box. The one thing that I hadn't thought about was the carburation issues that I was going to have with Homer. So we spent a lot of time and a lot of money trying to tune Homer's 350 into a decent carburetor. Fine when you're driving along in the flat, but when you get onto a hill, a steep uphill or a steep downhill, Homer would cough and splutter and cut out a lot. And uh, I got a lot of advice from people saying, oh, there's this four-wheel drive carbs you can get. I spent a lot of money getting them in from the States, a lot of tuners. In the end, we threw it all out and decided to fuel inject Homer. So that's what Homer's powered with, uh, fuel injected 350 Chev. I wanted a bit more height, so I went for what they call a spring over, which is when the springs are reversed, it's quite a complex process, quite an expensive process, but if it's done properly, it just gives you so much more ground clearance and weightability if you're going through deep rivers and that's what I did with Homer and was done by a friend of mine up in Christchurch who did a very good job and just better handling, better articulation with the big 35 inch tyres on it. I then set about with uh, setting up with ARB air lockers front and back. These are compressor driven lockers that lock the wheels into driving. I can just turn that wee compressor on there. That's the compressor going on and this locks up the individual wheels so if you lose traction in one wheel you get it in another so if you've got one wheel in the air the other three wheels are driving if you've got just one wheel on the ground that wheel is still driving forward so hopefully getting you where you want to go the next thing would be no particular order lighting i suppose i've put uh, a good set of LED lights, floodlights on the front and most recently a light bar so it lights up the ground in front of me like daylight and that's important if you're doing night runs which we do a few with the club and I do a few privately so you've got an area in front of you which is probably six to eight hundred meters and the sides of the tracks as well just like daylight and that makes it easier to navigate through and where there's just absolutely no light at all. Yeah, that's probably Homer in a nutshell. I could probably think of one or two other things I've done, but that's the main things. And we're in Homer right now, going nice and slow right down the hill from the top of Mount Prospect. And Roscoe Gowden is my guest today. He is the mayor of Milford. He's the owner of Roscoe's Milford Kayaks. So kayaking is a passion of his, and also nowadays more funneling that passion into different vehicles, all different types of vehicles. Homer is often parked right on the side of the road when you enter Teano and was one of the first things I saw when I first came here. Beautiful rig. But I'd like to ask you also about your other rigs. You do enduro racing and you said you have some faster rigs, faster than Homer here. Can you tell us about those guys? I've got a, what, a, what they call a trials rig, which is a 40 series Land Cruiser, also powered with a 350 Chev, and the name of this particular rig is Mr Muldoon. For those of you Kiwis that are listening, you'd recognise that name. He was one of our most infamous Prime Ministers back in the mid-70s, 75 through to the early 80s, and um, 
my father used to strongly dislike them, but I named Mr. Muldoon because this particular rig has got attitude and it's there to as much entertain me as entertain the crowds. The idea behind Muldoon was to make Muldoon a very strong, capable vehicle, whether it was climbing impossible hill climbs or going down impossible hill climbs or through bogs. And unlike Homer, when you sit in Mr Muldoon, you're surrounded by a steel roll cage, which gives you a degree of protection. Although the name of the game isn't to roll, if you do roll, you are safe upside down in a fully enclosed roll cage, a six-point harness, which again keeps you in the vehicle. So very much competition-orientated is Mr Muldoon. Everything that is on Mr Muldoon is built for strength, not necessarily good looks or style, but definitely a very, very strong rig. And with that particular rig, I take a navigator with me, who is there to tell me where the course is going. Often we're doing switchbacks and changing directions quite quickly in the speed sections. With the other sections, if we do get stuck in a five-foot bog, his or her job is to go out and put the tow rope on the bulldozer that is going to tow us out. So their job is important and is much appreciated when we're in competitions. But uh, yeah, the Muldoon is definitely a crowd pleaser and an eye-opener. We can push the start button, there's no question about the what sort of motor is under the hood. It's definitely a V8 and it brings a smile to young and old, so I enjoy that sort of competing. In the last four years I've got into the speed side of the sport, which is enduro racing and short course racing. For that discipline I have two buggies, one is a Edge Barracuda which is a Perth in Australia based kit set buggy which was bought over here by a friend of mine and constructed back in 2014. It's got 20 inch travel on all four corners with box shocks which give it the ability to literally jump over jumps and get 20 metres of distance and two, two and a half to three metres of air and hopefully land softly on the other side. Powered by a Suzuki Habusa motor, putting out just over 200 horsepower on the rear wheels. This particular buggy is rear wheel drive, but very potent, very fast due to its light weight. The power and weight ratio is incredible. Very successful buggy has won the New Zealand title, not with me behind the wheel, but with a friend of mine behind the wheel twice. We've won the Class 10 title five times between us, so it's a very agile, fast and fun buggy to drive. It does take a reasonable amount of skill to get it driving fast. You do need to be able to do what they call a Scandinavian flick into the corners, which is throwing the vehicle into a, a sideways skid to get around corners it has no lock at all so getting around hairpin corners you have to anticipate the corner coming up and literally throw that vehicle into a, a sideways what they call a Scandinavian flick and rally terms to get around that corner so it does make it exciting but a little bit difficult when you first get in it to actually maneuver it especially the tight corners 
straight line speed, very, very fast, very, very agile. And as I say, it jumps and covers rough ground with ease with its 20 inch travel on all four corners. The other buggy which I've been racing, this will be my second season, is a stock standard Polaris. It's a, a UTV Polaris, but there's nothing stock or standard about this. The guy that I bought it off in Christchurch had gone over to America to the Polaris factory and gone through the catalogue and just basically put all top shelf components from suspension through to cages, everything on it is aftermarket and it suits my style of driving these days. Very easy to drive, fast, but very forgiving but also very comfortable with the soft plush suspension that it has. What these vehicles are easy to drive at 90%, it's getting that extra 10% out of them which is tricky and that's the challenge, the challenge is there to yeah, get that extra 10% out of them to make them competitive with other buggies. So I, yeah, I quite enjoyed driving the Polaris. It is a very, very much a different beast to drive than the Barracuda, but fun nonetheless. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled, and we are right now in a 350 fuel-injected Land Cruiser, and there's a Chevy engine in here, and this uh, vehicle is called Homer. We're speaking with Roscoe Gowden, who's a motorhead and enduro racer, man of all traits, but today we're talking to him about his passion of enduro racing and some of the different rigs that he's crafted over the years. Roscoe, is there a rig that is potentially your dream rig that you haven't built yet, that you're dreaming about making one day? Not really. I got that question the other day, what's your dream rig? It was from the local farmer. I was doing a recce for a trip that we're doing next week and he said to me what is your dream rig and I said Peter I think you're in it. <laughs> this is as good as I want to get. It's a good combination of practicality, it's practical, it's strong, it's uh, the access into the back seats are uh, probably a little bit the weakness on it but uh, this is all I want in a rig this is my dream rig and it has taken me 46, 45, 46 47 odd years to get this rig every time something's broken on this whether it be a CV or something you know significant I've gone to the drawing board and said what is the best that money can buy component wise for this vehicle and I put it on so the other upgrade we just did in the last six months is put Longfield CVs in it which are Chrome Molly CVs which uh, hopefully we don't blow any more CVs with the, the power that we're putting through the big wheels and so forth so everything I've done on this vehicle I've, if something's broken or something's uh, not up to speed I've, I've gone back to the drawing board and said well what can we do better what's the best we can, money can buy and pretty much put it on this rig so you're sitting in Homer which is pretty much the dream rig. <laughs> Where did, how did Homer get its name? Not Homer Simpson, Homer after the Homer Tunnel which is the famous tunnel which links the west coast with Milford Sound itself and William Homer was the engineer that was the first person to actually come up with the idea of drilling the tunnel through the solid granite rock so 
This is a tribute to him. He was a, obviously a tough bugger, and we like to think Homer is um, a pretty tough rig that can handle where I take it, where I'd like to take it, in Fiordland and around the South Island of New Zealand. You can probably hear the sound of Homer's 350 fuel-injected engine as we cruise down. overlooking Lake Teanu, which is the largest freshwater lake in the southern hemisphere, and overlooking all of, uh, at least a large part of the northern section of Fjordland National Park. I wanted to thank you, Roscoe, for driving us up to the top of Mount Prospect and your time and energy to record with me today on the trail less traveled. Pleasures of my Mandela. I love taking you up here. It's a glorious March day, autumn day. It doesn't get much better. And friends and family, I love taking people up and showing them my backyard in Fiordland. Roscoe, let's end the show with three bits of advice that you'd like to share with the listener. Always, always be prepared for the unexpected. When I go anywhere with Homer, I always prepare myself for A, a potential walkout, or B, a night in Homer. So I always choose my footwear carefully. I'm not going to be up here in flip-flops. I'm going to have boots that I can actually walk out if I need to, and a sleeping bag or a warm blanket, depending on what time of year it is, that I can huddle up and, worst-case scenario, spend the night in Homer. An EPIRB, which is also another essential bit of equipment which I carry with me at all times, whether it be four-wheel driving, motorbiking, and these have revolutionised travel. Not a get-out-of-jail-free card, but nonetheless a very important piece of equipment which I carry with me at all times around my neck if I'm on a motorbike or in the vehicle. And if it does get really gnarly, around my neck, four-wheel driving. But normally it just sits there right there, so I know it's there. The other thing I always carry with me is a decent torch or light. And the reason for that is if you do need to get rescued in a night situation, which is probably when you, the rescue chopper would come out if you're overdue, these days in Fjordan we're lucky enough with our local pilot. He's transformed search and rescue with the advent of night vision goggles. And these night vision goggles amplify the natural light by 60,000 so all he needs is uh, really just a, a match or even flipping your cell phone but if you've got a strong LED light that light can be visible from five or six kilometers away and it can pinpoint him along with the GPS EPIRB and your LED light you can pretty much know that help is on the way so yeah those three things pretty much sum up if I'm going somewhere remote the three things that I make sure I'm carrying. Awesome. It's uh, my turn now to jump out of the rig and open up the uh, gate that leads up to the top of Mount Prospect. But before I jump out of the rig and open up the gate and we end the show, what song would you like to end the show with, Roscoe? I believe it's the Eagles, Take It to the Limit, one more time. I use that song as motivation, especially after I've had a long day in the enduro seat. When I know that I've just finished 250 kilometres, I've got out, I'm shattered, every bone in my body has been rattled, and I know I've got to go and do it all again. So I often use that song as a motivation to get my sorry ass out of bed the next day and know that I'm going to 
put in the same performance, if not better, the next day. So take it to the limit one more time. Kia ora, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Travelled, an adventure series dedicated to documenting humanity by collecting sound effects and interviews from the most remote locations around the planet. Subscribe to The Trail Less Travelled podcast on iTunes and check out traillesstravelled.net to follow the show as it is recorded on location around the world. I'd like to thank my guest for this week, Roscoe Gowden. Roscoe has had the passion for adventure and off-road racing since he was a small child. In addition to being the mayor of Milford, Roscoe started his own sea kayaking company while working as a whitewater guide in Queenstown. His company is now famously known as New Zealand's best sea kayaking destination. Roscoe has a collection of vehicles in all shapes and sizes, but his passion is motorcycles and 4x4 rigs made for enduro racing. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and my goal for this show is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Therefore, every week, I'll be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled in the mountains of Missoula, Montana, or on location around the world in order for me to find these adventurers and connect with them in their natural habitat. My adventure tip this week is in regards to proper hydration before and during your next enduro race. All the hydration in the world during an event will never make up for two days of binging on nothing but coffee and fast food. You need to be thinking about good hydration days before the event. Get your system well and truly up to scratch with plenty of fluid and healthy foods days prior to putting it through its toughest test. It really does make a difference. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week's adventure, please get outside and shred the gnar. Because as you know, the gnar simply does not shred itself. <laughs> <laughs>